The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think there's evidence of groupthink in this process that led to the Carter Page application, right? Carter Page went to Russia. He didn't think the U.S. and Russia should be in an adversarial relationship. Isn't that suspicious? That, that was the mentality that underlied some of this. And we have to be careful that groupthink doesn't give rise to consequential decisions like this. Does the process have notches built into these slippery slopes so that we don't get there? Uh, I think we have to be honest enough to see these things where they're present without necessarily accusing anyone of improper motives. People can be their own judges of other people's motives. I'm not going to get into that. But I think we have to be worried about groupthink in closed settings like this and make sure that the process includes things to counteract it. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, October 11th, 2021. Two weeks ago, the Department of Justice's Office of Inspector General released a report on the FBI's mishandling of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act applications. It's the latest in a string of Inspector General reports and other documents to talk about the process. To talk through the latest report why the process is so important, and what it all means, I sat down with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes and Adam Klein, the former chairman of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, who is now at the University of Texas at Austin Strauss Center as the director on the Program on Technology, Security, and Global Affairs. We talked through what's in the latest report, what to make of it, and how to think about reforms to the process in general. I asked Ben and Adam a bunch of questions before we opened it to a live audience to chime in with thoughts and questions that they might have too. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 11th. Adam Klein and Benjamin Wittes on FISA. All right, so Adam, get us started here with a little bit of a refresher. What are we talking about when we're talking about FISA and when people say the FISC? What are we talking about? What's the universe of things that falls into that bucket? That's a great place to start. I think those of us who are saturated in this stuff uh, sometimes forget to provide the satellite level perspective and explain all these acronyms that we're slinging around. And what do we mean when we're talking about FISA and the FISC? Before 1978, surveillance of suspected foreign agents in the domestic United States was a free-for-all. And as many of us remember or may know, that didn't always work out so well. Uh, There were a lot of excesses in national security surveillance. People who were not genuine threats to the United States were surveilled, were harassed. There was political intelligence collection by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI and all kinds of other shenanigans. And after Watergate, 
Congress went through a nearly a decade-long period of putting some guardrails around these things. And one of the guardrails that they erected was this law called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. And the basic premise of this law is that to surveil someone you think is a foreign agent in the United States using electronic surveillance, which is, of course, is a defined term in the law, but it basically means a, a wiretap that collects the contents of their communications. And we can get more into the details of that later. You have to go to a court. And it's not just any court. It's a special secret court that Congress created in this law. Now, why did they do that? Why didn't they just use the regular district courts? It should be fairly obvious given the subject matter. You can't just put a legal public legal filing saying that you want to surveil someone you think is a Russian or a Chinese agent. You can't even use a sealed filing because those courts are not set up to be secure for classified information being routinely processed there. So Congress creates this special court with classified procedures. What are some of the important features of how this works? For one, it's not a conduct-based order like you'd have in the criminal context where you have probable cause to believe someone committed a crime. Here, it's probable cause to believe that someone has a certain status, the status being an agent of a foreign power. So that's a big distinction. It's status-based surveillance rather than conduct-based. Another important factor is that these are ex parte proceedings. Now, that's true of warrant processes as well in the criminal courts. But of course, if the government uses wiretaps against you in a criminal prosecution, you can file a motion to suppress and raise all of your constitutional objections. Here, this is truly an ex parte proceeding. Only the government is there standing in front of the court arguing and presenting facts. And that is an important feature here because we're talking, of course, we're going to talk about accuracy in that process. And the government has to check itself because this is classified information. There's no outside lawyer here arguing on behalf of the defendant. And Ben, I'm curious, based on what Adam said, FISA controversies or any sort of FISA news do tend to get a particular amount of attention. And I think largely for for part of the reasons that Adam discussed here, talk to us a little bit why it's sort of maybe a little bit non-obvious why this is the case, but why do FISA matters tend to get so much attention? Why are they so important? So it's actually a bit of a change. When I started, became interested in the FISA structure in the mid-1990s, it got virtually no attention. And uh, I believe I am the only journalist who has ever been inside the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court's chamber. And that is for the simple reason that I think I was the only journalist who ever asked. And, you know, it wasn't a like a great scoop or anything. I was just like, hey, can I see the court? And Sure. Um, So they took me in. In the years since, it has become a matter of pretty consistent political controversy. And the reason the first big example of that was the case of Wenho Lee, the uh, Los Alamos nuclear scientist in the late 1990s. In the years post 9-11, the court began to be used for a much broader range of surveillance activities, including most famously actually was an incident where it was not used, which was uh, the Zacharias Massawi case. And then the Bush administration's decision to circumvent it in the stellar wind or warrantless wiretapping program. And so these all, this sequence of controversies involving FISA or the circumvention of FISA put the court very squarely 
in the public eye. And buried in that was an incident in 1999 and 2000 in which the court itself uh, got very angry at a particular FBI agent who had made a series of mistakes in FISA applications. And this caused in the year after 9-11, but actually I think unrelated to it, caused the court to really rake the FBI and the Justice Department over the coals. And that led uh, the attorney general to ask a gentleman, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney named Woods, uh, I believe it's Randy Woods, but I'm not sure, to uh, craft a set of procedures to make the FISC submissions by the Justice Department uh, to ensure that they were rigorously accurate. And the controversy today is over the Justice Department's and the FBI's in particular compliance with its obligations under the so-called Woods procedures. So every time Adam or I says the Woods procedures, uh, remember that this is a 20-year-old set of procedures that respond to the last time the FISA court was unsatisfied with the FBI's performance in being rigorously accurate in filings before the court. Can I uh, pile uh, pile on here and, and continue Ben's excellent uh, deep history of the FISA court and, and why attention has seems to have consistently grown? After 9-11, as, as Ben points out, there was the circumvention of the FISA court with the warrantless wiretapping activities. And then the FISA court starts to get drawn in in increasingly exotic ways. One example is the government went to the FISA court and asked it to legitimate one of those activities, which was bulk collection of call detail records. And the FISA court basically buys the argument that all records held by U.S. telecommunications companies can be relevant to an authorized investigation. And that reading of a, of a public statute, but it's, but it's a secret interpretation, becomes the basis for this bulk call detail records program, uh, of which there are some media reports in the years right after that happens in the mid 2000s, but they don't fire the public imagination. And then of course, that's one of the major things that Edward Snowden puts out in his revelations in 2013 um, is a court order issued to one of those companies. And that of course sets the world aflame when people realize that the government has been conducting this massive collection activity on the basis of a statute that I think if you read it fairly does not seem to authorize that. So that's one thing. The second, what I would call exotic animal that gets added to the FISA zoo is something called Section 702. And I, ha I hate to use these statutory sections because the eyes really glaze over. But basically what this is, is it allows the U.S. government to collect things electronically here in the U.S. from both servers and wires that pertain to people who are proven to be overseas, who are known to be overseas uh, and who are not American citizens. So it effectively benefits from the architecture of the internet, which has things pinging around the globe, even though they relate to people overseas, to conduct domestic collection of foreign people. Um, so that's what Section 702 is. And why this is interesting from the FISA court perspective is because it's part of FISA, but it doesn't have the individualized court orders that we have in other parts of FISA. Instead, the court signs off on this program once a year and signs off on the rules and procedures that the agencies have to use but they can target people individually without going to the court. Uh, and so you get the court's role changing and expanding 
And it's now making these decisions that look very systemic. And so, Ben, I, I want to move now to the most recent set of FISA controversies. So the report that we're here to talk about is sort of the I don't know, the ancestor of a bunch of different other previous actions related to FISA and the Office of the Inspector General within the past couple of years. Could you sort of walk us through? It's a really tangled mess. It'd be helpful before we move to what actually happened last week for you to just talk through the stages of things that led us to this moment. Yeah, let's call this the FBI's seven stages of grief. I have now have <laughs> to make sure there are seven stages of the. All right, stage one, the Russia investigation happens. And uh, early in the Russia investigation, one strain of the Russia investigation, and it's only one strain, and it's a strain that actually resulted in a bit of a dead end. It's not the strain that leads to the Mueller report or anything like that. But one strain is a set of counterintelligence concerns about a Trump campaign aide advisor named Carter Page, uh, who had some very unusual Russian connections and sympathies, including with Russian intelligence agents. Uh, and he had been given a, uh, a speaking gig in, in Moscow that he was rather unqualified for. And uh, the FBI was curious about whether he was being leveraged by the Russians. They eventually uh, acquire a FISA warrant against him. And again, I want to stress, this is not the exotic part of FISA that Adam is referring to in either of those. This is core FISA. You've got a suspect. You think he is a Russian agent. You go to the court. You present probable cause that he's an agent. You get a electronic surveillance warrant, and then you renew it two or three times, I forget which. And so Carter Page is under surveillance for a long time. And that application, both the original application and the subsequent renewals, turn out to have uh, between them 17 separate errors, some of which are pretty significant. And the Justice Department eventually concludes that while the the original application probably would have been granted anyway. There was not probable cause for at least one of the renewals if you factor out the errors. So this is a, uh, I think the technical term is a big fucking deal uh, when the FBI effectively has to concede that an actually applied for and granted order uh, is deficient as a matter of, of law. They're effectively acknowledging that somebody's civil liberties were violated. That is the really the first time that's ever happened in a Title I FISA, and it is a very big deal. That was the result of the first Inspector General investigation. This then spawns two other investigations. One of them is an investi another investigation by the inspector general, which is an audit of 29 other FISA applications to see if was this a problem with the Carter Page application or is the FBI making significant mistakes like this as a general matter. So that's investigation number one. 
And investigation number two is an investigation by one Adam Klein, who in his capacity as the chairman of these Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, uh, actually took a look at these 29 applications to make his own assessment of, wh of what kind of problems uh, they might involve. So um, that previous investigation, uh, which was, I, I believe, Adam and I did a podcast about that sometime back when, when he released that document. And what got released this time around was the Inspector General's audit of these 29 other FISA applications. Adam, anything to add to that before we move on to the report itself? No, I agree with all of that. I will only offer the caveat that I would hesitate to, to uh, characterize what I did as an investigation um, just because the board that I was that I chaired is set up to do something different than than IGs, right? Imagine the IG is in there in the trenches bayoneting, and we're orbiting from space looking at the satellite imagery, right? So we we got a sample of the FISA applications, nineteen of them. Uh, I reviewed them, and we draw conclusions at a somewhat higher level of generality than an IG would, trying to look at the systemic balance: is this generally working? Are there enough checks in place, et cetera? And so, Ben, let's talk about the report that came out this week. It, it might be helpful just to walk through what you see as sort of the big picture. What are the big picture takeaways from, from what came out last week? And what, what are sort of the live questions that you feel were either settled or sort of remain unsettled after having read that? So I want to say that I, I find this report very confusing. Not confusing because the results are confusing, but because the results relative to everybody's expectations are confusing. So let me back up for a minute and describe what I think are three baskets of people's expectations. So basket one, let's call it, I'm going to caricature everybody here. <laughs> let's say like the Republican, baseline Republican expectations, right? was the Carter Page screw up was a product of political bias. And so maybe you wouldn't expect to see systemic problems here because the reason Carter Page was, there were all these errors was that, you know, the, the FBI was biased against the Trump administration. It was political targeting. So maybe you wouldn't expect to see other stuff, like similar stuff in other applications. Then there's the expectations of people like me who did not buy the political bias thesis, which, by the way, the inspector general kind of rejected in the Carter Page case and said, uh oh, there's maybe a worse problem than political bias, which is what if the FBI's general accuracy in FISA applications is in general deficient and there are you know, people like Adam and me who've been running around saying, no, this is a really rigorous process. And, you know, like the FBI scrubs these things really well. What if we were all just wrong? And basically this is like, you know, they throw together a few pages and there's an affidavit and they throw it in front of the FISA court. And the FISA court really is a kind of rubber stamp. That was my real anxiety about this. And it was stoked by the interim audit that the inspector general did, where they said they found errors in all 29 of these applications and they really sounded pretty dire. 
So the, I think those were the baseline expectations. And then the report comes out and it says neither of these things. <laughs> it says, first of all, it has no hint of political bias. It has pretty systematic problems, but they generally don't rise to a level of like the Carter Page incident where it actually affects the result of anything. So most of these errors are very small and they're not what the what what the FBI calls non-material. They're, they're like not relevant to the adjudication. So a bunch of them are, for example, typos or misattribution of, you know, sort of, you know, technical mistakes. So you have the a, a widespread problem of low grade errors that aren't material to the adjudication of actual applicants. So if you're friendly to the FBI, you can say, well, you know, Adam and Ben were right when they were running. We have a rigorous process that's, you know, yeah, there are some mistakes, but they don't actually affect the outcome of anything. And surveillance applications are not being granted on the basis of faulty information. And if you're disinclined to be charitable in that way, you can truthfully say there are hundreds of errors in these FISA applications. And they're obligated to keep a, a Woods file, a file documenting every fact that's in there. And in hundred, a couple hundred cases, there is no Woods file and there's systematic failures to document things properly in the Woods files. So I think how you assess this is really a question of like what you're measure, what expectation you're measuring it against. Yeah. And Adam, I'm curious, you, so Ben, you wrote a piece on Lawfare with Natalie Orpet about sort of your guys' takeaways from, from the whole, the document and everything. Adam, maybe you've had a chance to read it, maybe not, but I'm curious to hear, curious to hear where you come down on this relative to Ben. Do you, do you hear what Ben is saying and what Ben and Natalie wrote and you think, okay, that that's pretty much how I feel, or is there some distance between what the two of you see when you when you read the report i agree with ben that it is very confusing it's kind of like a bowl of spaghetti and you've got different ends sticking out in every direction and it it is painstaking work to extract all of them and figure out what you actually have there Um, just to go back a second to the political bias question i think the ig was pretty careful in how he phrased that he said we did not find testimonial or documentary evidence that political bias influenced the decisions Okay, that's good, I guess. Was there circumstantial evidence that political bias influenced the decisions? Is there other evidence that is known to the public that shows political motivations percolating within the department at that time? I think people can be their own judges of that. What I I will assert with more confidence is that I think there's evidence of groupthink in this process that led to the Carter Page application, right? Carter Page went to Russia He didn't think the U.S. and Russia should be in an adversarial relationship. Isn't that suspicious? That that was the mentality that underlied some of this. And we have to be careful that groupthink doesn't give rise to consequential decisions like this. Does the process have notches built into these slippery slopes so that we don't get there? Uh, I think we have to be honest enough to see these things where they're present without necessarily accusing anyone of improper motives. People can be their own judges of other people's motives. I'm not going to get into that. But I think we have to be worried about groupthink in closed settings like this and make sure that the process includes things to counteract it. 
things like red teaming, which is something I rec recommended in my report that Ben alluded to earlier. Now, in terms of what we have here from the IG, I think it's important to differentiate between the different types of findings the, the IG has made in each of these processes, because he and his team were looking for different things every time. So let's start with Carter Page. Carter Page is kind of the 1A gold standard audit treatment. In that case, they had access to everything that the FBI had. They were able to interview witnesses. Hundreds and thousands of hours were thrown at this case. They knew the entire universe of relevant facts from every perspective, the Rashomon style reconstruction of what happened, right? And there you can say, was what made it into the application accurate? You could also say, what did they leave out? And you can get into the question of people's motives and so forth, right? You can really dig to the very bottom of ground truth. And they found a bunch of omissions. What are some of those omissions for people who may not be tracking? Uh, ben was alluding to Carter Page's contact with Russian intelligence officers. What the FBI left out, and in fact, someone went to jail for falsifying documents about this within the FBI, is that Carter Page was telling another government agency about those contacts at the same time, which is very important because it suggests that he wasn't a Russian agent. He was actually a loyal U.S. citizen who was helping the U.S. government. Okay, so that's a very significant omission. Another one was that Christopher Steele, and people remember the Steele dossier, it all, had all kinds of, of salacious um, things, which seem to have been mostly inventions and hearsay in it. Christopher Steele, who was this uh, former British spy for hire, put this dossier together. It turned out that he had told the FBI that one of his key sources was basically a fabricator who liked to give him gossip and other things like that. And that these, these quotes are all in the IG's report. That was also left out, even as the FBI was relying on some of the information from Christopher Steele in the application. So these are very significant omissions that were only discovered because the, the inspector general had the time and resources to get the entire universe of information about that one specific case. Okay, so that's, that's one level. The next level is what they did in these 29 applications, where they went through and looked at the application and compared it to the supporting documents. And that's good, right? They found a lot of errors, a lot of mismatches, but what can't you do? What can't you get out of that? You can't look for omissions. So we don't know whether there were omissions like those that plagued the Carter Page file. It's still good work by the IG, it's important, but we can't, we can't assume that the applications were complete because they weren't able to check for omissions. And, and I completely understand why they wouldn't. That is exceptionally labor intensive as I just described. And then there's a third set of applications referenced in what is it, what is a pretty confusing document, even if it's a, an important one by the IG, that's the 7,000. That's a number that you may have seen in some of the media reports. And that's all the cases that were filed during the years covered by the IG. That big set, that 7,000 set, got a third level of treatment, which was that the FBI went back and checked to see whether they had created the Woods files, these files that are supposed to hold all the supporting documentation. And in that, out of that 7,000, in 183 cases, the file wasn't there. Now, the documents seem to have existed elsewhere, and they were able to cobble them together after the fact, but that's not good. And remember that that's all they were checking for in, most, in virtually all of those cases. They didn't do the, the accuracy check that they did in the 29, and they certainly didn't do the omission check that they only did in one case. Um, so we have to remember that this sample that we found isn't, isn't great, and it's possible that if they had been able to do the Carter page level deep dig into each of these cases, we have no idea what we would have found. So 
So we don't want to overread this, but that cuts in two ways, right? We don't want to overread the findings as being more serious than they are, but we also don't, don't want to overread the absence of more serious findings as evidence of absence of errors in these cases. Yeah, that's a really useful way to think about it. And so, Ben, with that in mind, I'm, I'm curious what you think are, what are the things that we can reasonably draw out from this, right? Like, what are the mistakes identified that you see as on their own terms as being instructive of something going on here? Well, so first of all, they don't detail the specific mistakes. They characterize them in categories. And so, you know, whether they regard them as significant or the FBI regards them as significant to add to Adam's correct layers of complexity may not be the same as whether you or I regard them as significant. And, you know, I think if you're a surveillance target and you see, and of course you don't because you don't have access to the applications, but if you see facts that are wrong in the application, those are probably going to be more significant to you than they might be to the FBI agent who put the application together. So look, I think here's one thing that you can say. I will never say again in public, this goes through a rigorous process. These applications go through a rigorous process and they are, you know, subject to intense oversight within the FBI and, you know, the uh, Office of Intelligence and the Justice Department before it ever goes to the FISA court. And then there's an iterative conversation between the FISC and the and the Justice Department and the FBI. I mean, I'm just never going to spend my time making process rigor arguments. Those process rigor arguments, by the way, are all true. And yet they don't seem to mean in any of these cases that you can take to the bank the facts that are in these applications. And I think if you're a judge on the FISC, that means you're going to read them a little bit differently. It actually doesn't matter how I read them. It matters very much how uh, judges on the FISC read them. And I think you're probably going from a uh, environment in which the judges are looking at this and saying, we can take the factual statements as solid to a environment in which they're going to say, hey, we can take the factual statements as likely to turn out to be true, <laughs> you know, which is a different thing and, and involves a lesser degree of confidence. And that means the other thing is that I think you can expect more friction at every stage of the FISA process, more friction from the judges, more friction in the relationship between the Justice Department and the FBI, and more friction between FBI supervisors and their line agents. And by the way, you see that already in the very sharply declining numbers of FISA applications being sought. So that's, I mean, I think that's my initial takeaway is just everybody's going to trust this process a little bit less. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, Adam, Ben had referenced this earlier, but you're in the, the sort of unique position of having taken a look at a lot of different FISA applications, and you wrote in your former capacity this report that we posted on Lawfare, you wrote a Lawfare essay accompanying it. And I think one of the things that struck me looking at that side by side with what you see in sort of the IG report is the, the types of errors and, and you know problems that you focus on in your, in your report are of a quite different nature than that that you get in this IG report. And I'm sort of curious, curious to hear you talk about First of all, what's the source of that difference, right? Is it is it a question of mandate, right? Is it a question of the mandate of the PCLOB commissioner versus what the inspector general ought to set out to do? And then aside from that, I'm sort of curious on a on a broader perspective, when you look at what you did in conjunction with what the IGs come out with here, do you do you have a different take on matters or do you see things in a in a slightly different perspective? That's a great question. I think there's a fundamental difference in perspective. Right. The IG has a very granular, ground-level perspective. They are wading through this application by application, counting the errors, doing a spreadsheet to match one error up with another. And that's very important work. The, the work that they did, um, most notably on the Crossfire Hurricane Report, was immense, immensely important. That was a very consequential case. It was a debacle for the government. I think Ben's reaction, uh, where he said, you know, he will never make those that type of process rigor argument again, I think is shared by a lot of people in, in Washington and elsewhere who have followed this process for a long time. And that was a watershed moment that was enabled only by the shoe leather. Of course, I use that metaphorically because it's all on a computer, but the shoe leather case specific detective work that the IG did in that case. Um, and so that's that's very impressive and important. My perspective as chairman of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board was very different. We're trying to get the gestalt of a program, get a feel for how it works, and also provide an, an outsider's perspective with an insider's access, which is something that not many people in government can do. As in government, in a bureaucracy, this is just inevitable. No matter how well-intentioned you are, you, you can only see the sides of the valley that you are in. It is very hard to see the broader lay of the land. And so one reason why Congress created this board with, among other features, four part-time members who bring their outside perspective with them is so that you can get people who aren't so close to the action, who, who don't necessarily see things from the agency's view and can bring an independent perspective to things. And sometimes things, when you see them with those eyes, look weird, things that look normal to the people who are doing them every day. Uh, and so for me, that was in many ways the main benefit that someone like me could potentially bring to reading these applications in a different way than, than the IG would. How do these look to someone who hasn't seen them before? And it might be helpful just to sort of refresh people's memory or for those who haven't had a chance to take a look, what's, if you could sort of characterize the, the nature of your diagnosis of, of what was going on and sort of the nature of your recommendation, how would you characterize it? Because when I read through what you wrote, I think one 
maybe a way to think about it is you're sort of thinking about things on a much more on a level of almost written communication, right? Like how do we present the information, things like that. Whereas the IG is really focused on sort of granular questions. Is that a fairer characterization of what's going on? Yes, right. The IG is counting. Counting is a mathematical operation. I was you know, reading this as someone whose background is in the humanities. This is a piece of written communication. You are trying to convey something to the reader. In this case, the reader is a judge. Is the communication having the intended effect? Is it good? And I think that the people who are in the process are by and large well-intentioned, good civil servants who are trying to do the right thing, who are operating under very demanding time constraints, don't always have the opportunity to, to craft the world's greatest prose when you're cranking these things out and trying to get that FISA up on someone who is assuredly a threat to the United States. But that being said, clarity of expression is very important here. Um, and if you were to sit down with one of these applications as someone who is a great writer, but who's not familiar with the particular code of these applications, you probably would not find them any more accessible than I did. They're very long. There's a lot of repetition. There's not a lot of characterization and description of how things relate to one another, right? And so good writing is all about transitions. Here's what I'm going to tell you now. Here's why this thing is important. Here's how this thing relates to the last thing that I told you. A lot of that is left out and in fairness to the agents who are writing these things, there's a reason for that, because every statement in that application is supposed to be unimpeachably accurate and factually sure. And characterizations and descriptions of how things relate to one another are more subjective. Right? And so agents don't want to get into that subjective territory. Um, but I think it's actually quite important to convey to the reader what you think the, the important facts are how you think those relate to other facts in the application. And, and there are a couple of reasons for that, right? It, show, it tells the judge what to focus on, where's the keystone of the case, right? And it also saves the reader time and mental energy. So you don't have to go through what can be a very, very long and detailed application. First this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. Figuring out what's important, how do all these little pieces relate to one another? Because if you're using all your mental energy for that, you have less energy left to analyze, to, to think like a critic about this case and whether it actually stacks up. Uh, and so for that reason, I think it would actually be really productive to focus on how these applications are written and structured and to make sure that they include summaries, among other things, uh, so that the judges can focus their mental energy on critical analysis of the strength of the government's case, just like courts do in open settings where there is a premium placed on rhetoric and argumentation in the brief writing. So maybe it might make a bit of sense to talk about where we go from here. Ben, you you talked a little bit already about what the implications of this might be for, for the process going forward. But one of the things that you and Natalie wrote about in the piece, which I think might be worth drawing out a bit more, is the FISA process is a dialogue, right, between the FBI, the Justice Department, and then on the remedial side, there's the FISC, there's the IG, and then there's also Congress, right? So when this report comes out and when the IG's other you know, previous reports have come out, what's the action item, right? Like what happens next and who who's in the position of, of responding to what to what's come out? I would say there's two concurrent processes. One is that the IG has spent uh, a few years now really looking at the FBI's uh, handling of 30 different FISA applications with a fine tooth comb. 
that investigative process has yielded this audit along with the Carter Page uh, portion of the Crossfire Hurricane report. It has produced an enormous amount of upheaval within the FBI. And it has been, I don't say this in a negative sense, it has been very disruptive in the literal sense of disrupting the way the FBI has you know, done these things. It has produced a series of recommendations, a series of back and forths with the IG. So that is one process. The other process, which has been much less high profile because it has not involved uh, major reports, which tend to be you know, news events, is uh, that, you know, when the IG issued its Carter Page document, the FISC said, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? And there has been a protracted uh, back and forth between the FISC and the Justice Department and FBI about the integrity of the work product that the FBI is putting in front of the FISC. And that has involved, and Natalie and I detail some of that in in the piece, but I think most importantly, the FISC appointed an amicus, a lawfare board member and frequent contributor on FISA matters, David Chris. And David wrote, and and we published it at the time, a, a quite detailed set of recommendations and analyses in his capacity as amicus, that the FBI has mostly in dialogue with the FISC now implemented. And so I would say there's two major concurrent processes. At the end of the day, uh, and this is no disrespect to the IG, the relationship with the FISC is the much more important one to the FBI than the relationship with the IG. And the reason is that you know, the flip side of Adam's point that this is an ex parte process in which only the government appears is that there is exactly one party that appears in front of the FISC, right? This is a this is the ultimate repeat player game. The FBI has to show up and it has business to conduct in front of the FISC. It's, you know, 1,500 or so FISA applications every year, and it simply cannot get that done without a certain level of trust. And so it is critically important for the Bureau to have a trust relationship with the FISC. It's a, you know, a Reagan-style trust but verify relationship, but it's they cannot be walking in there day after day with the expectation that they are not doing their jobs well. And so like the IG is, a from the FBI's point of view, I'm going to say this because FBI people can't, a major league pain in the ass. But the FISC relationship is an existential problem from, for the Bureau, uh, at least in the counterterrorism and counterintelligence spaces. I'll just defend the IG a little bit uh, in response to the pain in the ass view, which I don't attribute to you, Ben. No, no, I just I just want to say, I, I, I am saying that is an FBI yeah. perception of yeah. the IG. I think the IG has made a very significant set of contributions here. I think there are a lot of people at the FBI who would love it if the ground opened up and the entire <laughs> Inspector General's office fell in. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Adam, you're still welcome to defend. Yeah, no, I'll just, 
I agree with Ben that the IG has made very significant contributions here. And there's a degree to which people have to have self-awareness about maybe the, the benefit of having external voices bringing some fresh air into the halls of your concrete fortress once in a while, right? I mean, they, they have been given very, very significant powers for very important reasons. I want them to keep those powers. I don't want FISA to go away. And just so people know, the Wall Street Journal editorial board came out the other day saying that FISA should be abolished and surveillance powers should be restored to control of, of presidential appointees uh, rather than going through the FISA court. You know, I, I respectfully disagree with that perspective. I think that would be much worse. I mean, if you think that the Carter Page situation was a debacle, um, as I do, imagine how much worse it would have been if there hadn't been the court providing at least some check and accountability there. But that's the direction things will trend for the FBI if these kind of mistakes recur. So people who are trying to get the FBI back on track with its compliance practices are not doing it because they hate the FBI or because they think these powers are unimportant. It's because they think they're important and they're only going to be retained if the American people have some confidence that there's accountability. I just want to add one point on which I think the IG does deserve criticism, intentionally or unintentionally, and I'm not, dis I'm not ascribing motive here. Uh, there was a pretty substantial difference in tone between the executive summary of this report and the uh, body of this report. And that's in pretty substantial uh, contrast, I think, to the Crossfire Hurricane report, where the, IG, the IG's executive summary, which is probably 25 pages of a 400-page of a report, is an excellent distillation of a very long document. And in this case, the executive summary does not mention the fact that the errors were not merely all non, with four exceptions, non-material, but that some of them were at a level of, of real triviality. And you really actually have to go into the body of the report to see that. I don't think the headline of this document by any means should have been Inspector General finds lots of typos in FISA applications. But I do think somewhere between there and sort of widespread systematic uh, falsification is, the is where the truth is. And I, I, I do think the executive summary did the body, the complexity of the body of the report a bit of a disservice here. Yeah, that's fair enough. We will bring on Terry with a question. Thanks for taking my question. How would you characterize the judges on the court? What's their background? You know, is it a job people want? Do we know? That's a great question. One, I think, positive feature of the way the court is designed is that there's not a special set of FISA court judges. They are regular, I, hate to, I hesitate to use legal jargon, but Article Three judges, which probably a bunch of lawyers on, on the call anyway, but for those who aren't, that means judges who are presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed to life terms through the procedures required by Article 3 of the Constitution, which governs the judiciary. So they're your regular old district court, federal district court judge with all the trappings um, that you would see in your local district court. And they are appointed by the chief justice to serve on the FISA court in addition to their regular duties. And I think that's good because the regular district court judges are tough. 
They're used to being masters of their domain. They're used to grilling everybody who comes in front of them. So I think that that to some degree helps mitigate concerns about regulatory capture. If your only judge, job was being a judge on the FISA court, then you have a stake in the continued existence of the FISA court. Maybe you get too chummy with the agents who, and the lawyers who are coming up in front of you all the time. Uh, so I think that's a, one of the wiser features that Congress put into this law. What's the term? Seven years. Thanks. I have a, only one thing to add to that, which is that I do think there's a difference between the D.C.-based FISA judges and the uh, non-D.C.-based FISA judges. So if you're appointed by the president and confirmed to the D.C. district court, there is a very good chance that at some point you will be the presiding judge of the FISC. And the reason is that the presiding judge is always one of the district judges in the District of Columbia. But if you're one of, what is it, 650 district judges elsewhere in the country, you've probably been appointed and confirmed without ever giving a moment's thought to the FISC. And you probably don't have somebody, you know, the FISC isn't run out of your courthouse. And you don't have a co- you almost certainly don't have a colleague right now serving on the FISC or a presiding judge on the FISC. The only rule the the chief justice kind of goes around the country and points, I think it's seven or eight people from diverse jurisdictions to serve on the FISC. And so the the percentage of DC based judges who are on the FISC is dramatically higher than the percentage nationally. And so I think there's more, there's more sophistication, at least initially, about these questions from the presiding judge pool than from the national judge pool. And some of the national people become excellent FISA judges, and some of them kind of like consider it a big pain in the ass and don't like it all that much. And so I do think that's a, a subtle but significant difference over time. Super interesting question. All right, so one more question. Ben, has the has the FISC changed since you were last there? Do, do we know whether it looks the same? We know it does not look the same. I have never been in the new FISC. So when I was in the FISC, it was in the Justice Department. And uh, sometime in the last 15 or 20 years, that came to be seen as, as a less than ideal visual representation of the separation of powers, having an Article Three court sitting inside the Justice Department. It just kind of looks bad. Uh, also, the judges have to, you know, go across the street and all that. So uh, they built a Fisk chamber in the Barrett Prettyman courtroom down the street from the Justice Department. It's about five blocks down the street and across Constitution Avenue. And uh, they uh, now meet there. And I have never been in that courtroom, nor I think have any other journalists, at least that I know of. I have been there. And if our audience members are imagining some kind of super cool Death Star-like situation. <laughs> that's exactly screens. what it's like. That's, <laughs> that's it. Don't, don't, don't shatter the illusion. Don't shatter their illusion. No, unfortunately, it's not like that at all. It's it's uh, very banal. Sometimes the most important things happen in the most banal settings, don't they? Picture, picture the you know Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> um. Um, we have a follow-up question on this count. So he asks, is it a full-time assignment? 
So do the judges who are not from the Beltway, do they have to relocate to D.C. to, to handle their business? No, they do not. And they, 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 they work on a rotating basis. And that actually can be important because they have, I think it's weeks on, weeks off. And so that means that when, when you get to renewals, that's something we didn't talk about, but that's actually a, a pretty big issue in my view. When you get to renewals, the judge who heard the first application often will not be the one who hears the renewal. And why does that matter? Well, as we were talking about, these can be very long. They're extremely complicated. If you get a different judge on the renewal, that person has to learn it all from the beginning. And some members of Congress have proposed requiring these things to go to the initial judge, to go back to the initial judge. That's a pretty decent idea. Now, the scheduling may not always line up perfectly, but to me, the benefit of attempting to synchronize those things where possible would outweigh any administrative cost. I think it's well worth considering. As Ben mentioned, there were three renewals in the Carter Page case. Some of those were under the um, auspices of the special counsel. And again, those weren't scrutinized as much as we would like them to have been. So to close, we have a question from Elaine, which has less to do with the court and more to do with the substance of the FISA reform process. So she asks, has the FBI improved its review of applications before they're submitted to the court? I think it is fair to say that the FBI has implemented any number of reforms, the details of which are extremely picayune. And the nature of this process is that, you know, we're living in in real detail here. They've implemented a whole bunch of reforms that should improve the outcomes a lot, which is exactly what we said 20 years ago about the Woods procedures. And, you know, one way to think about it is this is the turtle that walks halfway to the wall every day uh, and that the process is always improving, but it's, it's imperfect by definition. You can never close imperfection to zero. Another way to think about it is that all the procedures in the world actually don't solve the problem because the problem is that this is a non-adversarial process in which there's no defense lawyer to say to the FBI agent, yeah, but excuse me, aren't you full of shit? And that that, that, that is actually the element that's missing and that that's what we do in criminal trials. And it's what we, a version of it is what we do in criminal warrants, although we do it in an after the fact form of attack. And that the absence of that is actually, you can't fix it with Picayune procedural reforms. I cannot think of a lot of things that I think would really help that are not being suggested and worked on, but I can't tell you that they've improved the system because these are the 29 applications that they've audited from before that process started. And so where where they are now, if you if you chose 29 meaty ones today from the same eight field offices, would you have a better show? I don't know. And that doesn't address the much more important issue that Adam started with, which is this is about errors, not about omissions. Yeah, and I agree with that. To add a, a bit to it, as Ben said, this is a snapshot in time of a time that's passed. 
This is like drilling down into the ice core and we can say what temperature it was a thousand years ago. It doesn't tell us that much about today. I think a lot of good thing, things are being done to address errors and omissions, I will say. The DOJ is now conducting these completeness checks, which look for omissions. That's, that's a huge time commitment. I think it's warranted given the severity of what happened. That should improve things. They're going to be reporting the results of those checks twice a year to the FISA court. And let's speak up for the DOJ a little here. They were deceived by the FBI um, in the Crossfire Hurricane case. Stuart Evans, who was a deputy assistant attorney general at the time, tried to press on these on these applications. And so the DOJ w- was not necessarily the guilty party here or as accountable as the FBI was. They only can work with the, the information that they're given. Now, we, I think they should be given more information. They should be closer to the, to the ground level of the process. But that's, that, there is reason to believe that that oversight that's now happening by DOJ, by the National Security Division, is going to be really meaningful. So I think that's one encouraging factor on the omissions front. But again, there's this broader perspective, which is, does this process facilitate critical thinking? Does this process prevent groupthink? What I would like to see is some kind of red teaming cell created that when there is a really sensitive FISA, they get it together. And I'm not talking about the run of the mill Russian agent who's cruising around Washington up to shenanigans. But when someone associated with a political actor, when a religious leader, hypothetically, these are the cases that the FBI has already deemed to be especially sensitive, convene a red teaming cell and have people throw alternative theories of the case at you to make sure that you're considering all the different ways in which these facts might fit together. That's one example. Improve the clarity of the FISA applications in the ways I've described. Make sure that summaries are included in the FISA applications that go to the court. The summaries exist, but they're not part of of most of the applications at present. For renewals, make sure that people pause before filing a renewal and saying, what did we learn from the first one? And explain to the court whether the first surveillance confirmed what you thought about the person, disconfirmed what you thought about the person. If you didn't get anything good, why do you think you didn't get what you were looking for? They're not doing this right now. Um, And so there are ways to improve critical thinking around these applications beyond just checking for accuracies and omissions in this very granular way. And I would hope that Congress will take some of up when it, some of this up when it does legislate again. It will. We haven't talked about Congress at all, uh, really. But Congress will have to legislate again in 2023 on FISA when Section 702 comes up again. And I should note, some important FISA authorities lapsed in March 2020. No one's talking about that. Uh, I think it's regrettable that they lapsed, but in large degree, it's a consequence of what happened with the Crossfire Hurricane case. I agree with all of that. I will just add one cautionary note to close. There is a danger here that nobody talks about, which is the danger of making the process so gummed up and bureaucratic that it becomes very, very difficult and disincentivized to uh, seek a FISA application at all. We're already seeing some data suggesting that that's happening. I don't know what you do about this. It's 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 actually very similar in a different way from some of the you know controversies we've been having over policing, right? That you you really want to impose controls over policing, and you don't want less policing of the things that really need to be policed, right? And so, how do you do reform of FISA that causes additional rigor? 
that doesn't cause an FBI agent to say, you know, holy shit, I don't know, this is a kind of a marginal FISA case. I think we should go up on this guy, but I don't want an IG investigation of me for 10 years. And I don't want somebody asking whether I, you know, committed a crime by doing the FISA application this way rather than this way. And so screw it. I'm just not going to ask. And I do think that there is some risk of disincentivizing appropriate surveillance activity with a degree of micromanagement. And I do think at some point you have to think about what the relationship, you know, what the balance of risk is. That's not an argument against taking steps to increase rigor. It is an argument for saying that at, at some point you reach a point of diminishing marginal returns. I agree with that. I know we're at our time, but if I can just throw a, a last statement on top here, I completely agree with that. We do need a lot of, of this activity to be happening. We have China, which is, which is a very, very formidable peer competitor that is aggressively conducting intelligence activities. We have other countries, other adversaries that are doing that in the United States. We still have counterterrorism to pay attention to. The key is to gum things up where we want them to be gummed and ungum in other places where we are currently providing potentially too many protections to people who are clearly foreign agents and the process may be too cumbersome. And in my report that, that you alluded to from when I was in government, I provided recommendations for how we might do that. Uh, and so I think we need to think strategically. For example, U.S. citizens should probably get more protection than accredited representatives of foreign governments. Cases where you have people involved in politics, American domestic politics, that should be the siren going off. There should be a very high bar for FISA in those cases uh, because of the systemic risk to our political system to trust in the government from FISA. So we need to slice and dice the set of cases that we have every year more finely to make sure we're throwing the gumming into the right places and ungumming the places where we want to make sure that things do happen. And that is a terrific natural endpoint. Thank you both for coming on this week. And thanks to everyone in the audience for the questions and for listening. We will see you all next week. Thank you. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Bryce Clem for facilitating The Lawfare Live. And your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Your music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan, and the podcast is edited and produced by Jen Patihao. If you'd like to join live conversations and tapings of the podcast like this one, please consider becoming a Lawfare material supporter on our Patreon page. Through that, you'll get access to our ad-free podcast feed, along with special features like access to live events like this one. If you feel so inclined, please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast if you use a podcast service that allows you to do so. As always, thanks so much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.